Morning. Rest kids, you guys are dismissed. And as soon as they clear the aisle, ushers, you guys can receive the morning. Oh, it looks like Cody's going to be first today on the, out of the blocks. Oh, Warner, oh, Warner's coming back. Okay. A couple things. Uh, one, thank you guys so much for your support throughout seminary. Um, it, it's been fun. You guys know I graduated. And uh, it's, you know, the best analogy I have is almost like a, a baseball batter right in the on-deck circle. He's got a bat with a weight on the end of it. And that that weight sort of making it harder so when he goes up to the plate, he can take the weight off and, and, and swing really hard. And I almost feel like, you know, the, the weight's off the bat in some ways in, in my ministry. So thank you for all of your help. Um, secondly, happy Mother's Day uh, to the mothers in the room, especially my mother and my mother-in-law. Um, I am so thankful for godly mothers. I'm thankful for a day in the year where we get to uh, honor godly mothers and their impact on our lives, our communities, our churches. Uh, and our, our world. But I'm also uh, not naive enough not to know that, that Mother's Day, for, for some of you, is a very, very hard day. Um, perhaps your mother's no longer with us. Perhaps you don't have a relationship with your mother that, that you particularly want to celebrate. Um, whatever that may be, I want you to know you're welcome. We're glad that you're here, and we prayed for you this morning before the service that, that the Lord would draw you uh, extra near to his heart uh, as we gather, and focus not on what you don't have or, or wish that you had, but, but what you have in him. So uh, I hope that's helpful on this Mother's Day. There is a lot of text we have today. We have six chapters, so we're going 25 to 31. I'm not going to read every word, so don't worry about that. Uh, last week, in this incredible worship service, God has entered into covenant with his people. The God who delivered the Israelites from Egypt is setting the terms for his relationship with the people that he has delivered. At the end of chapter 24, we didn't spend much time at the end last week. At the end of chapter 24, God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. And then God calls Moses into this cloud of his glory on the seventh day atop the mountain where Moses would be for some 40 days. And what we have, the reason we have such a large chunk of text, is beginning in chapter 25 and then ending at the end of chapter 31, is what happens when uh, Moses is sort of enwrapped in this glory cloud, if you will. God has specific instructions for Moses that he's giving him in his presence. He has instructions for arrival, if you will instructions for his arrival because God is going to dwell with his people. But how? Two things. First, God will dwell with his people on his terms. God will dwell with his people on his terms. He will tell exactly how Moses is to prepare the way for his presence. God has the first word. God has the last word. Second, God will dwell with the Israelites in ways that do two things. And those two things are going to be crucial if you're going to get anything out of the text this morning. He will dwell with the Israelites in ways that display his glory and tell his story. In ways that display his glory and tell his Story. That's really, really important because as we gather this morning and as we think about the instructions that God is giving Moses, the instructions to build a tabernacle, we realize that this tabernacle is a glimpse of redemption. 
It's a foretaste of deliverance, if you will. It's a glimpse of God's great story because the tabernacle that we'll read about this morning points us to Jesus, God among us who would walk in our shoes, walk on our path, and walk in our place. And Jesus, upon his ascension, would send his spirit to dwell in us, both individually as believers and corporately as the body of believers. This morning, as we gather, the God of the tabernacle, the God of Israel, is among us. May we bring him much glory, and may he bring us much joy this morning. There are three movements of the sermon, if you want to kind of track where we're going. The first movement will be this contribution to the tabernacle, and it'll be uh, pretty short, just the first nine verses. And then the bulk of our sermon is going to consider the form and function of the tabernacle, the form and function of the tabernacle. And then finally, we'll consider the provision for the building of the tabernacle. So we'll start with the contributions from God's people to the building of the tabernacle. We'll go through some of the instructions that God has given his people about building his tabernacle and what it's supposed to be like. And then finally, we'll consider how God has uniquely gifted his people to do exactly what he's called them to do. So let's not waste any time. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. God is going to pass the plate, if you will, from every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution from, for me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from the people. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Why? Verses 8 and 9 are a sort of thesis statement, I think, for the whole interaction. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you. No putting it up, like, eh, it's close enough, right? We did a lot of that over the last couple of years. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you will make my dwelling place. He's requested from God's people a gift, a contribution from every man. The text says what? Whose heart moves him whose heart moves him. God loves a cheerful giver. God's not demanding from Israel these things, but could you imagine putting your wealth to any other use? I mean, imagine if you're an Israelite and God puts out this clarion call for all of these materials, and what's gonna happen with these materials is they are going to be used to build a place where Almighty God may dwell. This kind of giving is much more about what God is doing than what they are Losing. If you don't want to give to this, that's okay, but you're literally missing out on building God's house. Right? You're literally missing out on having the things that, that, that you have received and you've actually received through uh, plundering the Egyptians upon your leaving that God has told you to take with you because God knew from when he was delivering you from the Egyptians that the gold you would take from the Egyptians would be used in the tabernacle. And that's a pretty awesome picture of the wealth of the nations being used to glorify God. And that in itself is a foretaste of where this whole thing is going. All of the nations will bring all of their wealth to God in worship. But I digress. 
This building of the tabernacle, this dwelling place of God would involve everybody. Everybody had a chance to contribute what they had, and I think that is a beautiful truth. I think the uh, corollary to our giving today is, is similar, uh, but I think it would be somewhat anachronistic to, to preach an entire sermon on that. I think there are principles we can see, though, that God loves a cheerful giver, and God has given all good things, and God requires all good things for the advance of his fame among the nations. Now, in chapter 25, we begin in verse 10, and we work all the way through the end of chapter 30, thinking about the tabernacle. Now, we're going to move sort of from the inside out in, in degrees of descending holiness. We're going to begin in the most holy place, We're going to kind of move to the holy place and then to the courtyard uh, of this structure, the tabernacle. And I don't know about you, but when you approach the text, when you're hearing it read and when you're looking at it, it can be so overwhelming because uh, there are so many details that we can sort of miss what's going on. So I want to kind of uh, draw in our brains the tabernacle structure so that we have some sort of context by which we can think about its structure and all of its component parts, and the things that fill it, and the things that happen inside of it. The tabernacle would have two rooms, an outer rectangular room with three pieces of furniture, a table for food, a lampstand, and an incense altar. So we have this rectangular room with a table, a lampstand, and an altar. Then on the other side, on the west wall, I believe, there's another room, except this room is a perfect cube, 15 feet by 15 feet, separated by a special woven curtain of red and blue and gold with these cherubim motifs, these sort of angels that look almost like lions, right? So this curtain this fine, fine curtain with these cherubim sort of woven into it is going to separate this 15-foot by 15-foot room from the holy place. The holy place is going to have the lampstand, the altar of, of the incense, and the b- table for the bread of the presence. Now, in the holy room, the holy of holies room, the most holy space, there will be only one thing, the Ark of the Covenant a beautiful, ornate box, basically, with a platform on the lid called the mercy seat that would symbolize God's presence. From this text and some New Testament texts that speak back of the Ark of the Covenant, we know that inside the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets containing the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and a piece of Aaron's staff, the staff that was used so often throughout this narrative to see God's authority made known to the outsider. So with that, and then a court, sort of a courtyard on the outside. So picture a large rectangular room, sort of a courtyard that anyone could come to, a holy place where only the priests could come, and then a most holy place, this perfectly cubed room separated by a veil uh, with cherubim guarding the veil, right, where the Ark of the Covenant were to rest. And in that Ark would be these Ten Commandments, a piece of Aaron's rod, and a jar of Manna. So with that sort of full picture in our head, we can jump into the first of six things. I want to jump through quite, quite quickly. The first, let's consider the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy place. Look with me in verses um, 10 through 21. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with what? 
pure gold. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. No one will ever see the inside. Why would we put gold in it? All the same way that some of the medieval cathedrals, on the underneath side of the steps, they would take the finest craftsmen and they would engrave little sort of emblems that represent the Trinity. They would engrave the XR, the Christus logo of Christ, on the inside of the steps that no one would ever see. And why would you do that? Why would you do something like that in these cathedrals? Why would you decorate the inside of the ark that no one will see with gold? Because God sees it. Because God sees it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay those with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Why? Because you couldn't touch the ark because it represented God's presence and it is supremely holy. Verse 15, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Verse 17, you shall make me a mercy, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and you shall make two cherubim of what? Gold. Everything in this most holy place was to be made of the finest gold. You shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered works shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy Seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim, these winged angels, right on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. So you got that, right? These two winged Creatures, these angels, these angelic beings are, are of one piece at the top of this ark and they're facing one another. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. There, on that mercy seat, verse 22, I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Here, atop the mercy seat, in this most holy room, decorated with the finest gold in the world, God would meet with the high priest. In Moses' life, God would meet with Moses. This space was so utterly holy, no one else could enter. No one could touch the ark itself. On the mercy seat, the lid atop the ark, God would meet with the high priest of the people once a year, one time, on the day of atonement. And do we see the picture of these winged angels on the top of it? They're not facing outwards, they're facing inwards, and they're sort of bowing in worship before. And if we have any biblical scholars in the room, these aren't the first winged beings, winged creatures that we've heard of in the Bible, right? In the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin, they are banished east of Eden. And then what is placed there? A couple of cherubim, right? These winged creatures are placed to guard the Garden of Eden so that no one could enter back into Eden, right? No one, uh, spiritually speaking, could go back to a perfect walk with God. 
man would never recover what they lost in Eden by our rebellion, by our sin. We would never recover that through our own efforts. But in the tabernacle, through a mediator, through a high priest, one time a year, and on the mercy seat, something of Eden would be restored. This is pretty rich. The ark reminds us of God's holiness. The mercy seat reminds us of God's mercy. And as God is beginning to unfold his plan for how he will dwell among his people, we begin to learn that he hath not forgotten what happened in Eden, and he is going to make it right. There's something else I think that we can learn about how to relate to God from this Ark of the Covenant. You know, most Israelites, almost all Israelites, would never see it. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament, and we think about how God performs all these miraculous wonders, and he does, and we've read many of them in Exodus. But you know, most, if not all, 99% some, of the Israelites would never see God's presence. They would never see God's glory. They would never see the ark. They knew there was an ark that symbolized God's presence among them, but they knew that by faith and not by sight. They couldn't see it. Even in transport, it was so completely covered up. They knew there was a, a blue raft object with poles being carried about that contained these gifts from God that represented his provision, but they knew of God's provision by faith and not by sight. By faith, they believed what the priest told them, that there is an ark behind that curtain, and that there is a God who really does meet with him on that ark behind that curtain. And by faith, they believed that what that God they could not see did behind that curtain they could not see through actually mattered to them in ways that they could and could not see. We, like them, trust God by faith even when we do not see him. And this pleases God in that trusting is his glorification, and in that trusting is our enjoyment. Now, we move outside this, this perfectly cubed room with the Ark of the Covenant and sort of the, um, the mercy seat into the, the holy space where we see the table for bread and the golden lampstand. So in chapters 25, uh, verses 23 through 40, we learn about the table for bread and the golden lampstand. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. So again, we have this extremely ornate uh, table that God is giving his people. But the table is supposed to hold something. It's supposed to hold uh, food, right? Verse 29, you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. In this text and others, we learn that there will be 12 loaves of bread placed on this table. Why 12 loaves of bread? 12 loaves of bread represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And I think we can learn two things about this bread in the holy space. One, we can remember that every tribe has a seat at God's table. Each of Israel's 12 diverse tribes have a seat at God's table. And the second thing we could remember is that God provides. 
that this bread is a symbol that all who come to him are nourished by him. And that bread was eaten by priests, so they were quite physically nourished by the bread in that space. Do we see how this points to Jesus, the true bread, the bread of life, whose broken in body, whose body was broken, and of whom we partake? Now, directly across from the table is a lamp. And, you know, don't think of, like, something you plug into the wall, uh, obviously. Think more like almost a menorah. And this lamp was made to look sort of like an almond tree. If we see, uh, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. It shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower uh, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. So in this room, we have bread, and we have a lamp that gives light that looks something of a tree. It's practical. The priests would need light in that space to offer sacrifices and to do what they must do, but it's also symbolic because the priests were to keep these, this lamp burning all of the time. Its light would never go out. Why? Because God is always present. This idea of light is a recurring theme throughout the entire Bible, right? In the beginning was darkness, and God said, let there be what? Light. In Jesus was light, and that light was the life of man. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, God is light, and evil is darkness. In Christ is light, and that light is the light of man. So we know from Matthew 5, Jesus commands us, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we have these two prominent motifs and themes in this holy room, right? We have bread, we have light. Jesus is the ultimate bread of life. Jesus is the light of the world. We can begin to see how all of this is fitting together. Third, chapter 26, perhaps if you're just reading sort of leisurely, it's the most monotonous chapter, because chapter 26 is sort of going through the actual form and structure of the tabernacle. You can read the first few verses if you'd like to get a feel for that. But let's jump down to verse 31 in chapter 26. Chapter 26, verse 31 says, and you shall make a veil. So before we get there, right, there's these poles that will be erected, and there will be this sort of, um, you know, covering, and, and these are the things you'll put as the shelter, and, and this is how far apart you'll, you'll place the poles, and, and, you know, this is what the building's structure, the actual edifice will, will be like. And now we're introduced to this veil that's going to sort of segment um, the building and separate the rooms one from another. Verse 31, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with what? Again, cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil 
will separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle, opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. So we're bringing all this together, right? Hang with me, right? We're bringing all this together, right? There's this veil that's going to separate. The ark and its mercy seat are going to go behind the veil into the cubed room. The, the bread and the light, the altar, these things are going to go on in the holy space in this rectangular room. And on this fine veil that's going to separate these spaces one from another, you're going to weave these images of Cherubim. This curtain isn't so much keeping God's people away from God, though it's doing that at this moment in time and space, but more profoundly, it's keeping God's glory away from his people. The cherubim are a reminder that God is separated from us because of our sin. And the cherubim are on this, this, this curtain, this veil that separates the presence of God from the normal priests and then from the everyday people like, like you and like me. But there's two things, that the, the ways the cherubim is used that I, I think just will, will lead us to worship, right? The cherubim on the veil are reminding us that behind this veil is God, and in God is life as it should be. And you can't just waltz right into God's presence. You can't just waltz right into the presence of a holy God and expect things to be right and as they are. And the cherubim is a reminder of what happened in Eden. It's a reminder of the rebellion of Adam and Eve and all of the human race in them. But the cherubim inside of the room, they're not facing outwards, right? They're not facing outwards protecting the ark. They're facing inwards. They're bowing. They're worshiping because they know that it's on this mercy seat which they face that the presence of God would manifest itself. And even these angels knew they were in the presence of someone greater. We'll talk about this at the end of the sermon, but this tabernacle will eventually give way to a more permanent structure, a temple, and there will be a veil there as well. And on that day when Jesus died, when his body was broken, uh, something miraculous and spectacular happened. The veil of that temple, which the tabernacle precedes, would be ripped right down the middle because the presence of God was being made available to all of the human race. The cherubim bow before Jesus and holding his hand we walk into God's presence. The cherubim bow before Jesus and holding his hand we enter in to the life of the holy God. In chapter 27, we see the altar in the courtyard and the oil for the lights around the courtyard. God has told his people to make an altar of acacia wood covered in bronze. Bronze. 
So the courtyard's going to be sort of outside of things, right? So we've got the most holy place, we've got the holy place, and we've got the court. And anyone could come, well, all of the Israelites could come into this, this courtyard. And the first thing that they would see is this bronze altar, right? We're kind of going and descending holiness. So, so you've got the gold uh, there in the middle, and then you've got the bronze in the exterior. And so the first thing that the Israelites would see when they come to worship is an altar where sacrifices were to be made. Because people could only come to God through a sacrifice. That sacrifice is the entry point of worship. No one comes to God, we learn in these early days, but through shed blood. It's almost like if you walk into many old churches, and I wish we had the architectural ability to do this, but in many cathedrals, uh, in the narthex, right, in the foyer, would be the baptismal, the baptistry. Because it's a picture of the life of faith, right? You enter through baptism, and you join God's family. So literally, baptisms throughout history have been performed in the foyer of the building, because we used to think theologically about space. Now we are pragmatists who unfortunately tend to think pragmatically. But there's this idea that our architecture reflects our theology, reflects what we believe. And so there was, you know, in these churches, this baptistry would be in the foyer, and, and we enter into the church uh, through, through that. And, and this is the same idea is at play in the life of the Israelites. When they, they see the tabernacle set up, they come to the tabernacle, and the first thing they see is this, is this altar, this bronze altar where sacrifices would be made, because worship then begins with sacrifice, because God is teaching us that the only way to worship him is through sacrifice. Eventually, in the New Testament, we'll learn that Jesus was the sacrifice that God had in mind, and God is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. We come to know God in spirit and in truth by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. There's only one entrance in the courtyard we learn from this text, and that entrance is to the what? East just like the Garden of Eden. As I've said, the priest could enter the holy place, the normal folk were around this courtyard, and then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. I'm intentionally repeating some of these things to sort of continue to paint this picture in your mind. The lamps in the courtyard would always be lit, the text teaches us, right? Reminding God's people that he's always present, he's always with them. The fifth thing I want us to note briefly is priestly service. Chapters 28 and 29 deal with sort of the, the role and the office of the priesthood. The priests are the people who are going to work inside of this space. They're going to be the ones who head up these worship duties. Just a couple of verses so we get some context. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, and Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So God is calling Moses, his brother, and the lineage after him to be the ones who sort of uh, offer or who attend to the work of the temple in verse 29 of chapter 28, there's some language that's used a couple times that I think is really, really significant, right? That the priests were to bear the names of Israel before God. They were to bear the names of Israel before God. I mean, they were to represent the people of Israel, the individual families that made up the nation of Israel. They were to, they were to, rep, he, they were to represent them before 
God. They were utterly set apart to God. Their role is vital for the spiritual health. And then in chapter 29, verses 45 and 46, after we've talked all about their garments, which we could do sermons and sermons on, after we've talked all about their consecration, their being set apart, we're reminded of the big picture in chapter 29. If you look with me in verses 45 and 46, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Sixth and finally, and we're just about finished, to believe it or not, there will be an altar of incense that rises to the Lord. There will be a census tax by which all of Israel keeps the tabernacle uh, funded. There will be a bronze basin for priestly washing before the priests go about their duties, and anointing oil and incense to dedicate all of this to the Lord. Now, now that we've gotten through all the contents of the tabernacle, imagine building all of that and then what? Moving, right? You gotta tear it all down and bring it with you wherever you're going, and then you gotta put it up. But here's the glorious picture of God's presence with his people. When they would travel by day or by night, he would lead them by a pillar of smoke or a pillar of fire. And then when they get where they're going, what would they do? The first thing they would do would be to construct the tabernacle. And then they would start with building the tabernacle. They'd put that in the middle. And then in concentric circles around the tabernacle, they would build their own dwelling places. And imagine the picture, right, in the ancient Near East of this people who utterly orient their entire existence around the presence of their God. Everything about the tabernacle taught the Israelites about what life with God was like. At this point, Moses is probably feeling overwhelmed. Enter Oholiab and Bezalel as we close considering the provision for the task that God has given Moses. The Lord said to Moses, after all of this, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on it, all the furnishings of the tent, the table, its utensils, the pure lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basin, its stand, the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, the garments of his sons for their service, as priests, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. All of that. I've gifted these guys. I've gifted Aholiab and Bezalel with all the intelligence and all the skills and everything they need to know to make this happen. And every able-bodied man in this crew, they're going to be able to take part in building this. I've called you to lead this, but I haven't called you to this alone. None of this really matters if Moses can't make it happen. God says, I've called a guy by name. 
I've filled him with my spirit, and I've given him all the ability he is going to need to do this exactly as I've called him to. He is gifted. He is talented. I've wired him in such a way that he really cares about the craftsmanship of this temple. He's not going to just be like, oh, I'm not a priest. That's what some of y'all do. I'm not a priest. I don't matter. No, 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 no. Listen, no priest can do what the priest does if a holy Abin Bezalel don't do what a holy Abin Bezalel are supposed to do. Because a holy Abin Bezalel are making a way for the priest to do what they can do. I remind us this morning that God has always provided the provision for his commission. God has always supplied us with everything we need to be obedient to his will for our lives. God has gifted you, I'm talking individually to you, in such a way to make him known. The skills, the talents, the passions you have are not there by accident. They are hardwired into you by a holy God who has made you to play a role in his story. On our graduation, or our commencement sort of, I don't know, handouts or whatever they call it that you get at the door, uh, programs, that's it. On our commencement programs at the uh, last page, I think, uh, or first page, I'm a mess, man. This sermon's had me messed up. On the first page of the last page, there was a, a quote from Danny Aiken, who's our seminary's president, and its prayer for us was this. My prayer for you, the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. My prayer for you this morning, the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Worship team, if you guys would come up to the stage as we work our way to a close. I think in Aholiab and Bezalel, we see a principle that all we have is all we need. To be faithful to the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else in our lives. But we can ask ourselves, and we've alluded to it before, and, and many of you know, right? How does God dwell among us today? There's no tabernacle. There's no temple where God's presence specifically comes. In John's gospel, my favorite of the four gospels, it's the wordiest. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, I think a better way to translate that would be the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The picture that John is giving the world for Jesus coming and living with us is the tabernacle. That, that tent that represented God's presence, that followed Israel wherever they went, that that tent points to Jesus Jesus came, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, God from God, light from light. He came to earth, and he tabernacled 
among us. Church, Jesus is our high priest. He has gone where we could not go and made a way for us to come with him. And together we stand with Jesus in the presence of God where the angels themselves dare not tread. Christ's body is the veil that was torn that we may enter into the life of God. Jesus, like that lampstand in the holy space, is the light of the world. He is the light of man, and that light will never, ever be extinguished. Jesus is the bread of life, and anyone who eats of him will never hunger again. Jesus is the mercy of God. He is our way of salvation. Jesus is the sacrifice on the altar through whom we enter into God's presence and by whom we can worship our Father in spirit and in truth. Church, Jesus is the tabernacle of God who has drawn near to us. And today he is seated at the right hand of God and he has sent his spirit to dwell in us and dwell in our fellowship as the church that we may play a role in his story. And all you need to be faithful to what God's called you to do is not more money, another degree, a better church, a better pastor, better programs at your church, more stuff to do. All you need is all you have to be faithful to what God has called you to do. Church, God is drawing from the nations of people who love him and not themselves, who delight in him and not their stuff, who are content in him and not their circumstances. God is calling a people from the four corners of the world into his life that we might live forever with him. Because as the cherubim indicate, God never forgot what happened in Eden. And though we, time and time and time again, are faithless, he remains faithful. And he will reign forevermore. Do you know him today? Do you know this Jesus, the bread of life, the sacrifice for us? Is your heart moved to worship because of who he is, what he's done, and why it matters? And if you do know him today, are you leveraging your life for his story and not yours? Right, today is a clarion call moment for you to live for something more than status and fame and comfort. But to live for God's glory that he may be made known in our city, in our state, and among the nations. Let's pray. Almighty God, we learn so much about you from your word. We glory in the truths that we've considered today. 
Lord, we could never get to you. We could never be good enough to earn our way into your presence. But you wrapped yourself in flesh and you tabernacled among us. And when we have seen Jesus the Son, we have seen the radiance of God's glory. And through his broken body and shed blood, you invite all of us to come to you in repentance and faith. Father, you're redeeming all things for your glory. All things sad are becoming untrue. That the life you intended at the very beginning of your word for man to live, we will one day live, but not because we've earned it, but because Jesus has earned it for us. So help us proclaim this gospel, that life with the holy God is possible, that Jesus has come to rule and reign forever, and that one day he will return. The eastern sky will explode, and Christ will return, and the nations will bring all that they have and lay them at his feet. Father, help us to live in this story motivated by your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.